In Mark 11, once again, we've come as far as verse 27. Where we read, Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question. Ask him too. Then answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, We don't know. Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus comes back to Jerusalem with his disciples and we have this encounter. Uh, This is the day after he drove the merchants and the money changers from the temple. And so they're wanting to know why he had done this. What gives you the right to do this? Uh, He had also done this at the beginning of his public ministry. It's recorded in John chapter 2 verses 13 through 22. Where it says, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It's the same feast years later. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers money and overturned the tables. So Jesus had actually uh, made himself. He wove a little cord with of whips, and he used that to drive them out. He doesn't do that in this later instance. Um, but he was definitely serious about it. He said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. And so the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? They questioned him right on the spot there this earlier event, basically asking him the same question. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So in this first instance, uh, they ask him specifically, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? You've got to have some kind of a miraculous sign to, to demonstrate your authority. I mean, we're the authority here. You're not the authority. Uh, same basic question. It's who do you think you are is what they're asking. What miraculous sign are you going to give us to prove that you have the authority to act in this way? Who gave you this authority? We're the ones in charge here. We're the authority, and we haven't given you any authority. And so this challenge to Jesus' authority, just what is his authority? What authority does he have, and where does it come from? They might say, we have authority, but you're a rogue, a vagabond, a troublemaker. You have no authority here. This is their basic message to him in their inquiry. Uh, But... They're also in a public setting. They can't treat him as they would if they were in private. We see that treatment when they find him apart from the crowds of people later when he's betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and subsequently we began to see their true motives toward him. Jesus loved to answer their questions with his own questions. This was very rabbinical anyway. It was That's a common practice among the rabbis. It's similar to God answering Job from the whirlwind because Job was inquiring of God. In Job 38, verses 1 through 5, it says, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? You know, he asked Job questions. Prepare yourself like a man. I'll question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? You're so knowledgeable, Job, about everything. 
And the Lord spends a few chapters just asking Job questions. And somebody counted the questions. I don't remember how many there there are, but a lot of questions. You know, later on at the end of all these questions, Job confesses. He said, "I've I've heard of you." This is chapter 42. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. He had no answers for any of the questions. Uh, later in chapter 40, verses 6 through 14, it says, uh, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me that you might be justified? Have you an arm like God or can you thunder with a voice like His? Then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor and array yourself with glory and beauty. Disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in hidden darkness. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. The questioning of the Lord. And Job is sufficiently chastised. You know, Hebrews 12.11 talks about that chastisement that's painful at first, but then it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So the question Jesus poses is about, excuse me, is about John the Baptist's baptismal ministry. Is it from heaven or is it just from men? Was John sent by God to do the things that he did and say the things he said? Or was it just the actions and words of a man? How do you judge? Now, probably none of these who are questioning Jesus have been baptized by John. You remember he shouted at them when they came out, uh, that called them a brood of vipers and said, go show works of repentance, you know, fruit that shows you've repented and then come and then I'll baptize you. So they probably, probably none of these guys had been. And that gives the answer in itself. Actions speak louder than words. Then they say, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why then did you not believe him? This is an embarrassing follow-up question. They're looking ahead. <laughs> These men are not stupid. And they realize that there's a trap set here for them. Uh, they came to John and they had the same question for him they had for Jesus in John uh, chapter 1, verse 19. It says, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? They're basically asking him, what's your authority? Why are you, uh, why are you baptizing? How can, you know, we didn't send you out here to do this. He confessed, did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. These were people that they were expecting to arise on the scene. And they said to him, who are you? That we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John says, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? What's your authority? And John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. Interesting. Jesus is right here in the crowd. It's he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. Well, he gave me this authority. Later, after the resurrection, these same, many of these same religious leaders asked the apostles, after they had healed a lame man, it said, uh, Acts 4, 7-11, when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name or authority have you done this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people, elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And we'll see this quoted again. So, uh, the, uh, Peter and John told the people 
who saw the healing, the same thing in Acts chapter 3. Uh, they were amazed that Peter and John had done this. In Acts 3.12, Peter says to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? It's the authority of Jesus that accomplished all of these things. So, you know, we come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do what we do in His name. We speak what we speak in His name. We have no other authority. But we also have no less authority. In Matthew 28, uh, 18, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Some of the last words to his apostles. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So the authority that Jesus had, he gave to them to carry out the commission that he called them to. To baptize, to teach, all the things that are commanded, and that's the authority of Jesus. Well, throughout the rest of Jesus' time before the uh, crucifixion, the Jews seek to pin him on the horns of a dilemma, to ask him a question that he cannot answer, to shame him in the eyes of the people, to bring him down and show their superiority over him. Yeah, right. He does to them what they are desiring to do to him before they get a chance. Jesus taught the golden rule in Matthew 7:12, part of the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Isn't that pretty simple? You want to fulfill the law and the prophets? He says, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. Pretty simple. In this case, he does first to them what they would like to do to him. But he has this authority to do so. And at the same time, he's doing to them as he would have others do to him if he were in the same situation. It's impossible for him to be in the situation they're in. But if he were, he would want someone to share the same things with them that he's sharing. He knows men's hearts. He knows what they need that they might have the best possibility of repentance. And we know that there are some in this crowd who will repent and believe. Uh, In Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, we're told that many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And many of the priests are here. These Jewish leaders are themselves caught on the horns of a dilemma, and it's one of their own making. They know what they think and what they would like to say, but they cannot answer honestly because the people are of the opposite opinion And they fear the reaction of the populace. The people judge John to have been a prophet and are afraid if they answer honestly that the people will stone them to death, Luke tells us in this same context. Jesus also knows John the Baptist to be a prophet. And he told them he's the greatest who has been born to a woman, but greater, greater than he is the least who is in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 11, 11. These men remind me of our own political class. They say, maybe if we obscure what we really are saying and make it sound as much as possible like what the people want, perhaps we can lead them along into our kingdom and into our dominion. So Jesus doesn't answer their question. Basically, I won't tell you. You figure it out. William MacDonald says, when they refused to answer, professing ignorance, the Lord refused to discuss his authority. As long as they were unwilling to acknowledge the credentials of the forerunner, they would hardly acknowledge the higher credentials of the king himself. End quote. The answer to the question Jesus asked about John the Baptist provides the answer to the Jewish leader's question if they were honestly willing to answer. If John's baptism was from heaven, which it was, that provides the answer to from whence Jesus had his authority. Uh, In John chapter 1 and verse 29, it says, The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If his baptism is from heaven, 
And he's identifying for them the Messiah and also the one who would be the Redeemer. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I do not know him. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. Here's the baptism from heaven. This is the reason I came baptizing. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. He says, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. William Barclay said, The whole story is a vivid example of what happens to men who will not face the truth. They have to twist and wriggle and in the end get themselves into a position in which they are so helplessly involved that they have nothing to say. In Matthew chapter 21, in between this challenge to Jesus' authority and what we'll come to in chapter 12, Jesus tells a parable that kind of links the two events together. Matthew 21 verse 28 he says to them, in this context again, What do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it, and he went. Then, came to the, then he came to the second and said, Likewise, and he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? Jesus asked them. And they said to him, The first. That was an easy one. They were willing to answer that one. And Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. That's this same group of guys that he's talking to. For John came in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. You didn't even respond after you'd seen the fruit of John's ministry. So Jesus doesn't answer them directly this question, but Jesus then goes on in chapter 12 of Mark to speak about the source and legitimacy of his authority in a parable. So if we go on to chapter 12, it says, Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Then again, he sent them another servant and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another, and him they killed. And many others, beating some, killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do when he, what would the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone or the head capstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him but feared the multitude for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. They're not stupid. So they left him and went away. So we see Israel as Yahweh's vineyard. We looked at this not long ago, but we'll remind ourselves here of the basic truths concerning this. How he cared for the vineyard and he protected it. He planted a hedge around it so that destructive wildlife or weather could not damage or destroy it. And of course, he's speaking of bringing Israel into the land, flowing with milk and honey and blessing them and protecting them from their enemies. We see this in Psalm 80, starting in verse 8. The psalmist says, You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. 
The hills were covered with its shadow and the mighty cedars with its boughs. She sent out her boughs to the sea and her branches to the river. And then the psalmist asked, Why have you broken down her hedges? So that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit. The boar out of the woods uproots it. The wild beast of the field devours it. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see and visit this vine and the vineyard which your right hand has planted and the branch that you made strong for yourself. This uh, hedge God built around Israel, a hedge of protection. Uh, Back in Job again in chapter 1, uh, verse 6, we see this in the case of Job. It says, uh, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. In the Old Testament, the sons of God it's always speaking of angels. And the Lord said to Satan, from where, from where do you come? And so Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none more, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? Job was a protected man. The Lord didn't allow Satan to get to him. You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The challenge. And the Lord says to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. This is kind of a scary scenario. Here, you know, it gets scarier <laughs> as the book of Job goes on. God has his hedge of protection. Job, you know, his family is destroyed. All his property is destroyed. God's opinion of Job does not change. God knows he's not perfect, but he is upright, blameless. He fears God and he shuns evil. Later in chapter 1 and verse 20, it says, Job arose, this is after all these disasters, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. Of course, then Satan is allowed to touch his body, and he has the physical suffering that he must deal with. So, in our passage, God has given possession of the land to Israel. It's his chosen land. He gives it to whom he will, and then he leaves them to operate the vineyard. He is not superintending the vineyard continually. He gives the responsibility for the vineyard into their hands. He's the owner of the vineyard, and they are accountable to the owner of the vineyard for the fruit that is produced. Israel is to worship God and obey the covenant that is between them. And they are to bring forth fruit to the owner. He's always looking for good fruit from his vineyard, from his fig tree, from his olive grove, his people. In Ephesians 5, again, verse 9, it says, The fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. These are the types of things that the Lord is looking for as fruit from his vineyard. So, a vintage time comes. The right time for fruit. The owner sends his emissary to receive the fruit. And this parable is a real picture of what commonly took place, especially in the region of Galilee. Uh, there's a, there was a tenant farming relationship that was a common practice. Now, archaeologists have discovered records of the same sort of dispute between landowners and tenant farmers uh, from the time. Well, we see in the response of the uh, vine dressers the fruit that they have produced. They beat the servant of the Lord and send him away with nothing. They do not provide the fruit of goodness, righteousness, and truth. They're producing bad fruit. But the vine dresser does not immediately reject them from the vineyard or destroy them. He continues to send his servants to them seeking the good fruit. But they treat them worse and worse as time goes by. Their responses to his servants escalate to the point of murder. Those servants they do not beat and shamefully mistreat 
they kill. We see this played out in the history of Israel. When Israel strayed from God's ways, that is, they did not bear good fruit to the Lord. He sent his prophets to them to declare to them their sin and to exhort them to return to the Lord. Second uh, Kings chapter 17 in Israel, uh, the northern kingdom has gone into exile to Assyria. At this point, the kingdom of, that was ruled by Hosea has fallen. People were involved in gross idolatry, even to the point of child sacrifice to their false gods. Second uh, Kings 17, uh, the beginning of the verses here, starting with verse 7, he talks about how they sinned against God who had brought them up from the land of Egypt. They walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Verse 9, the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right. I mean, secretly in their own minds. (laughs) They set up sacred pillars, wooden images on every high hill. They burned incense to these false gods. And verse 12, he says, they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this thing. Verse 13, he says, Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all of his prophets, every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants the prophets. Nevertheless, they would not hear, but they stiffened their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God, and they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and his testimonies which he had testified against them. They followed idols, became idolaters, and went after the nations who were all around them, concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. So the northern kingdom, he sent prophets numerous times, and this is, you know, he's testifying to that after the fall, but as you go back, you see prophets arising and and warning the kings and the people to turn back to the Lord. In 2 Chronicles chapter 24, this is in the southern kingdom of Judah, and it's the uh, king. The king is Joash, and he became king at seven years old. Remember, he was hidden in the temple, and Jehoiada the priest, a very godly leader, had raised him up. It says in verse 17 of Second Chronicles 24, after the death of Jehoiada, Jehoiada, the leaders of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. And therefore they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers. We're told that Joash served the Lord all the days that Jehoiada was alive. But after he died, he departed. So they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers. They served wooden images, idols. Wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem because of their trespass. It says, yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. And they testified against them, but they would not listen. So we see, again, these servants that are being sent by the owner of the vineyard that the fruit might be received. Um, Note here that the purpose in verse 19, he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. That was the purpose of God in sending the prophets, was that they might turn, that he might not have to um, pour out his judgment upon them. The people of Jesus' day generally did not practice idolatry with carved or cast images, but we do have his testimony that they departed from the Lord in their hearts. There's a different kind of idolatry than the physical image making. But God had been faithful to Israel and Judah, sending his messengers to them, telling them to return to the Lord, and he forgave all those who responded to the call. Uh, Jeremiah talks about this numerous times in his um, book of prophecy. Jeremiah 7, verses 23 through 26, he says, this is the Lord speaking, This is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts, And went backward and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, the Lord says, I have even sent to you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. 
Yet they did not obey me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. We find the Lord sending uh, his prophets, his servants, the prophets. And he says, daily rising up early and sending them. This is like, you know, the Lord doesn't slumber or sleep. So he's giving us a picture in human terms of his urgency in sending the prophets. I, you know, I got up early before it was daylight and sent them. I didn't wait until the last minute. I didn't wait until it was too late. Also in Jeremiah 26, uh, verses 1 through 7, this is at the end of the kingdom of uh, Judah, Jehoiakim, um, one of the last kings. It says, In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this, this word came to the Lord, or from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house, this is what Jeremiah is to do, and speak to all the cities of Judah which come to worship in the Lord's house all the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not diminish a word. Perhaps, listen to this, the heart of God, perhaps everyone will listen and turn from his evil way that I may relent concerning the calamity which I purpose to bring on them because of the evil of their doings. This was the Lord's desire. He knew what would happen. He knew what their reaction would be. And certainly there uh, probably were those, a remnant, who listened, who repented. You shall say to them, verse 4, Thus says the Lord, If you will not listen to me to walk in my law, which I have set before you, to heed the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent to you, both rising up early and sending them, but you have not heeded, then I will make this house like Shiloh and will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. So the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. Jeremiah is one of those servants who was sent to testify. And you'll find this idea of the urgency, the rising up early, several other places in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29, 19, 35, 15, 44, 4 and 5. Over in Zechariah chapter 7, Zechariah was in the, the days of Zerubbabel after the Exile, post-exile. In Zechariah 7, verse 8, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Execute true justice. Show mercy and compassion everyone to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. But they refused to heed, shrugged their shoulders, and stopped their ears so that they could not hear. This reminds me of those folks at the stoning of Stephen, how they were enraged and they covered their ears so they couldn't hear any more of God's word. <laughs> Rushed at him and stoned him to death. Yes, they made their hearts like flint, Zechariah says, refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Thus great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. Now, these things are all given to us as examples, we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, for us to avoid. After recounting the idolatry, the turning away from the Lord in the first part of the chapter, in verse 11, Paul writes, All these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. first part of this chapter was about idolatry, and so Paul's telling us, flee from idolatry. We're not, you know, we may not be have a little shrine in our room somewhere. But we can indeed, you know, idolatry is really a description of of all sin. It's putting some some other thing in the place of God within our hearts or within our lives. And so that's why the exhortations to flee idolatry. So we see this situation with God sending the prophets, sending his servants, them being ill-treated, cast out, some of them killed. This is, Israel is examples for us to avoid. The Lord's the same. The outcome's certain if we behave in the same way. 
Now, we as a church, we're in a different situation than, than Israel was. We're in the New Covenant, yet we will be blessed or chastised based upon how we follow Him. The Lord is many times gracious in mercy, and mercy, and we don't get what we deserve. But generally, that's going to be the outcome if we continue in our own, going our own ways. So we see this hostile treatment of those whom God sent to declare His truth and call to repentance through the history of the nation of Israel. Sometimes the people listened, especially in the days of the good kings and leaders. But many times they did not, or they turned from God when the godly leadership died and ungodly leadership took over. We need to be aware in our day. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, we're warned, know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. The times are getting more perilous. I'm afraid it can get a lot more perilous. I don't like that. But we are in the last days and perilous times are coming and have come. For men will be lovers of themselves. These are the kind of things that cause these perilous times. Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It's quite a description. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. These are posing as godly people, Christian people. Some of these people will be in leadership in various places. Having a form of godliness, denying its power, and from such people turn away. So we want to stay in the Word and not be influenced by ungodly leadership, even if that ungodly leadership is found in the church in various places, which you know, we can be exposed to. They don't have to be here for us to be exposed to them or to be influenced by them. Over in Hebrews chapter 11, in regard to these who are being ill-treated and, and killed, uh, at the end of the chapter, this hall of faith, Hebrews 11, verse 32, uh, first he talks about those who experience great miraculous deliverance. He says, what more shall... I say, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, reference to Daniel, quenched the violence of fire, probably the three Hebrew children, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, and women received their dead raised to life again. Elijah and Elisha ministries. And then he, but then he writes, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. These are the experiences of many of these prophets and godly men. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Many think this is a reference to Isaiah in the days of Manasseh. Uh, some say Jeremiah, but uh, the tradition seems to focus on Isaiah. Yeah, they you know, find a hollow log, they put you in it, and then you get a couple of guys with the saw going back and forth. You know. So some were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain, or tested, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. We know that at one point, um, trying to think of the prophet's name, I don't know, it was in the days of Elijah, I think he hid 50, 100 prophets, 50, two in each cave, you know, a large cave. So, you know, these 50 of these prophets were hiding in caves from Jezebel and, and uh, Ahab. He said, uh, they were destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So they didn't receive the promises, but they were bearing good fruit to God. Right? So the Lord still comes looking for fruit good fruit from his people. And he's laid up a lot of good fruit in his storehouse 
in heaven because a lot of that good fruit has gone before us. Those who are bearing good fruit have gone before us. They are the good fruit. Uh, he says here, some were, in verse 35, some were tortured not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Now, this makes me think about not accepting deliverance, makes me think about those who are uh, captured, imprisoned. Uh, they might be tortured to recant their faith in the Lord Jesus, but uh, he says they won't accept deliverance, wanting a better resurrection by not doing so. So, you know, they tell them, just stop saying the things you're saying and you can go free. Not really free. So finally, the vineyard owner sends his one son, his beloved. Jesus is declaring to them once again that he is the son of God, God's beloved. And of course, the vine dressers kill him and cast him out of the vineyard. Jesus is prophesying his own betrayal and death at their hands, these men he's talking to. He's charging them with murder before they kill him. How startling this must have been for those among them who understood what he was saying. Just what they have been contemplating in their hearts for some time, Jesus tells them, this is the storyline. This is the outcome. Will you turn or will you be part of it? In Luke um, 19, there's a parable told about the kingdom of God. Some thought it would appear immediately in verse 12. Jesus says, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. It says, But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And that's the people that Jesus is speaking to here. Uh, they fulfill Psalm chapter 2, which tells us why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And the Lord laughs at them. And this has, Psalm 2 will have a, a literal fulfillment later in history, much later in history, but this is the heart. Uh, reflects the heart of these people that Jesus is speaking with in this setting. So, he sends his son. The son was the final word. There would be no other word. He continues to send his messengers to Israel, but they must hear the message of the son. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. He's the heir of the vineyard, through whom also he made the worlds. So he is, he's been said to be God's last word, God's final word. Either they will accept the message of the Son or they will face certain judgment. C.H. Spurgeon says, If you do not hear the well-beloved Son of God, you have refused your last hope. He is God's ultimatum. Nothing remains when Christ is refused. No one else can be sent. Heaven itself contains no further messenger. If Christ be rejected, hope is rejected. And we carry that gospel. We're messengers, but we're bringing the word of the Son. We're not bringing anything forth that's new in any way. No one else can be sent from heaven because he's already done everything that can be done. So he asked them, uh, what will the owner do, the owner of the vineyard? And according to Matthew, there were some among them who gave the only logical and reasonable answer, the same one Jesus gives. But Jesus answers the question himself so that there can be no doubt. He will destroy the vine dressers, give the vineyard to others, others who will bring forth the desired fruit. Matthew 21:43. The kingdom of God will be taken from you, given to a nation, bearing the fruits of it. And so we find the church in the new covenant made up of Jew and Gentile, 
that are to bear fruit of the kingdom to God. So God's still looking for good fruit. Back in Isaiah 5, this is the uh, definitive passage of Israel as the vineyard of God. And in Isaiah 5.1, he says, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. That sounds a little bit like the Song of Solomon. You know, this, it's a love song. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? God did everything he could for it to produce good grapes. Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge. It shall be burned and break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. These are the grapes, the good grapes and the bad grapes, the wild grapes. Justice and righteousness, good grapes. Oppression, cry, bad grapes. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 20, he says, For of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds, and you said, I will not transgress. When on every high hill and under every green tree you lay down playing the harlot. Yet I had planted you a noble vine, a seed of the highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? And so God has dealt with his vineyard throughout his history. Yet there are those who bear good fruit to the Lord. These are several scriptures we've read before. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 5, Jesus said, I am the true vine. So he changes the whole picture around. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes or cleanses that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. By abiding in Jesus, we're able to bear the fruit, same fruit that he bore when he was here, just a lot more branches. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If you're separated from the vine, then, of course, You're not able to bear any fruit. So Jesus finishes his conversation with them in verse 10 where he says, Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. He's saying, look, (laughs) wake up. You're rejecting me. Haven't you read this scripture? It says the chief cornerstone has been rejected by the builders. This is a quote again from Psalm 118. Uh, it's 23 20 through 26. But this was a psalm that was sung around this time as we've, we've discussed before. And the Jewish people and the leadership recognized this as a messianic psalm. And uh, this part of the psalm is verse 22. It says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And then, save now, or Hosanna, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. This is the part of the psalm that the people proclaimed on Palm Sunday as Jesus was riding into Jerusalem. Hosanna, save now. O Lord, send prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So the people at that point were 
recognizing Jesus. And so in verse 12 then it says that they sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. They're, they're catching on that a lot of the parables of Jesus at this, in this time period are being spoken about them. And hmm, that sure sounds like a situation here. That, hmm, uh, but they're not listening at this point. It says they left him and went away. So these Jewish leaders got the point. They believe that Psalm 118 spoke of the Messiah, and now they hear the Lord Jesus applying it to himself. I'm the chief cornerstone. That's what he's saying. And you guys are rejecting me. They recognize this parable as speaking of the Messiah, so they wanted to lay hands on him now for making this claim. Yet even later, when they had him on trial, they could not produce evidence that would convict him, since indeed he was the Messiah. What obstinance, what refusal to accept the truth. It's like Acts 7, 54-57. This is the instance of Stephen being stoned. It says in verse 54, When they heard these things that uh, Stephen was saying to them, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they, ran, they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And of course, then they take up stones to stone him. The Saul is standing there holding their coats, watching their coats. They were cut to the heart. And their response in being cut to the heart was to attack him and kill him. He fits in with the servant sent to the vineyard. Earlier in Acts, uh, this, you know, by being cut to the heart, the word here means to be sawn asunder. It's <laughs> just like ripping a saw, a saw through their heart. But earlier in Acts, in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 37, after Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, it said, When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And they share with them how they might be saved. So uh, there are a couple of different responses you can have when you're cut to the heart. You can humble yourself before the Lord and you know, return to Him righteous in righteousness. Or you can become hostile. You can um, despise the truth that you are hearing and attack the truth or attack the truth bearer that is being brought to you. They want to kill him now. This is what they would like to do. But they're afraid to do so because of the people. But their desire has not changed. And it's been going on for some time. We saw it you know, back earlier in the book of Mark that they were, they were trying to get rid of him. And we see it in all the Gospels. They merely bide their time until they can fulfill the prophecy contained in this parable. And they do fulfill Jesus' prophecy here at this given, that they would uh, kill him. <laughs>